0: such a blessing to see each of you this morning. and such a blessing to be able to read the Word together, to learn about our God together, to be in the house of God as a family. So it's, just, it's such a blessing to be here with you sharing the Word this morning. So if you recall, the last time I had the opportunity to share the message, we were working through a series of statements in the book of John. These are collectively referred to as the I am statements, statements made by Jesus about himself. So when we went through that before, we we did two of them. We did I am the bread of life and then I am the light of the world. So this morning we are proceeding to the third of these statements. But before we do that, I kind of wanted to give a brief recap on the I am statement in general, what that is, because it's been a little while. So the plan is, of course, I'm, I'm going to be moving through the remainder of these, and this will culminate on Sunday the 29th as we finish going through each of these I am passages. So as we come into the passage where we are this morning, bear in mind something specific about the Gospel of John. John works especially hard to show Jesus' distinctness from us. He is not merely man. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. And so the, the lens really comes down, the magnifying glass, if you will, in the book of John on Jesus as God. And John systematically, he moves through, he has grouped these passages in such a way so that we are walked through kind of a argument, so to speak. He's applying point after point after point. Jesus is more than merely just a teacher. He is more than a man. He is more than just a king. He is more than a prophet. He is God. We see this distinct purpose, and we read it this morning earlier, when they read, led us in the statement, the, the first few verses of the Gospel of John. Where, what does it say there? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this claim, it ultimately arrives, of course, at its conclusion at Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That ultimately is the, the capstone, if you will, for his argument. That if there's any proof for anything, it's that the reality that Jesus is a risen Savior, not a man dead in a grave, he's a risen Savior because of that, You can look to him as something more than something like us. He is God. Now, another thing that we need to go over is how the I am statements typically come about. When Jesus says, I am, he typically pairs the statement with something else. Normally, like in the first two passages we went through, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6, and I am the light of the world in the first part of John chapter 8. See, he's putting it together with something else. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And typically, that's how that works in these statements as we go through them. You will see that Jesus is pairing it with a figure of speech to get across a greater meaning about himself. And so in that sense, the actual reality of the, the magnitude of saying I am It softens the blow a little bit, and you can get away with saying, well, maybe he didn't mean it quite the way that we read it in other places in the Bible. Maybe he's meaning something else. But there are a couple instances in the Gospel of John where Jesus doesn't do that. He just says, I am, and he leaves it there, and it hangs. He doesn't put it with something else in those instances, and we are looking at one of those cases here this morning. So another thing we need to look at is what is the significance of I am within of itself? Specifically, the main thing that may come to your mind as you think about this is in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3. It's a story that you're probably familiar with. God calls out to Moses from the burning bush and he commands him, I want you to go to Egypt and liberate my people. Tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses is perplexed think that's a soft word to use there. He's perplexed. He's, he's not sure about this. And one of the things he asks God as he's speaking to him from the bush, the God of your fathers has sent me to you when I tell them that. And they ask me, well, what does that mean? How do we know that you're from him? What do I say about you to identify you as who you are? How do I, whenever I go to them and tell them, look, God has told me to come to liberate you. And they say, well, what does that mean? Who are you talking about? What do I say when they ask me? Because you have to imagine how difficult this would have been. for me. What do I say when I go there? So they know that I'm from you. How do I d- identify you by name? So if, if someone were to come to you, I think typically when we're asked, like, who is God? What is God? Who is he to you? We attach other words. We might say, well, he's the creator, right? He created everything. He made those trees. He made the grass. He made the sky. He made you and I. He's creator. And that's true. We may refer to him as father. We may refer to him as king of kings, lord of lords. We may say comforter or helper shepherd or friend, it it goes on and on, right? Because there's so many things, so many roles, so many ways in which God helps us. There are so many things that he means to us. There's just this huge list of things. But God, whenever he responds to Moses, he doesn't do that. He doesn't use any of these earthly terms. He doesn't use father. He doesn't use friend. He doesn't use any of those things. He tells God, I mean, God tells... Moses in verse 14, tell them I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Notice God's response concerning himself as I am who I am. There is nothing to which he can be compared to. Ultimately, in of himself, I can't just slap the label creator on God and say, done. There he is. He's creator. He's so much. More than that, there is no earthly thing that we can ultimately point to and say, oh, God is this. He cannot be defined by anything other than who he is. He is who he is. He is God. He is. I am. So that is the significance of I am when we come to these passages in John. And everyone around him knows this. This isn't. They're just like, what is he talking about when he says just, I am? They know that it's a reference to what's come before. They know it's a reference to Yahweh God speaking to Moses from the bush. I am that I am. So again, as we come to the passage this morning, hold that in your mind. Hold that in your heart. Before we go to the word this morning, let's pray together. Oh, God, I thank you that we have the the great gift of being able to come together as your people to read, to hear, to study your word. I thank you that not only do you hear us when we speak to you in prayer, You are a God who speaks to us from your word. And it never returns to you void. So I pray this morning as we read together, allow our deaf ears to hear, soften our hard hearts. May we hear you for who you are. Enable my stammering tongue to. Proclaim your word, because that is what we are here to hear. We are here to hear Christ. It's it's in his name we pray. Amen. So typically the way I would approach giving a word like this is I would read the entirety of a passage, and then we would go back and go verse by verse. This is a very large passage. So because of that, I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. We're going to go bit by bit. And what I'm hoping to get across in the next hour and a half, I'm just kidding. It'll be about two hours. No, we're we're moving to a goal here. So as, as we go through the word this morning, we're going to go through it in parts. We're going to go through a few verses, talk about it, do the next few, talk about it, and then go to the end. And another thing to bear in mind is that there's a lot going on in this passage. There's so much meaning in so many of these statements. And to take even just an hour and a half to just go through the first six verses doesn't really do it justice. So in the time that we're moving to a goal here, so when you read some of these statements and you're really kicking it around in your mind, go back to it later, right? Because this is the word of God. We want to pull from it every bit of truth that we can because it's God's truth. It's true. It holds meaning for you and I. It's his word. But again, bear in mind, we're not going to pause every little bit and go through. We're going to move towards our goal as quickly as we can. So bearing that in mind, I'm going to read the first 31 through 38. We're going to read that, and then we'll pause, and we'll go through like that. So starting from 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word and you were truly my disciples, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So pausing there, let's address several things. First, let's notice who his audience is. Who is the audience? We find that immediately in 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, right? The audience is comprised of those who have believed in Jesus. Coming out of verse 30, just prior to that, it says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So we're just flowing right down. In 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. In 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. So see that connection. We're, we're just going right from one to the other. He's talking to Jews who believe him. They have a measure of belief in him. Or in what? We'll read about that more as we go. But it's interesting that the word believe is used there. Believe is a very popular word for John. John uses it a lot. And here he uses it, and we'll see it kind of against another set of verses using the word believe later on in the passage as we go. But just bear in mind... That right now, Jesus is talking to people who apparently believe him. The next thing to notice, after just reading, he's talking to people that believe him. Jesus says some things, and then his audience's response is what? They're offended, right? They're offended by what Jesus has to say. Because implied by Jesus' first statement, the truth will set you free, is that they weren't free before, they aren't free now, They're not going to be free until the truth sets them free. So it's interesting because if you read the history of Israel, we we know that they have a a past that is very covered in oppression, right? We know that centuries and centuries before that they were what in Egypt? They were slaves. And then God sent Moses. Moses came, he liberated the people, and they went out from there free. And it's interesting because we just talked about that, right. We just talked about Moses and the burning bush, and it's interesting to look at those two things together and think, well, here Moses is leading them to freedom, and here Jesus is saying what? You're not free. So we know that they were liberated from Egypt, and then they go out from there, and once they're liberated from Egypt, after hundreds of years of ongoing, unrepentant, spiraling patterns of sin, Israel, the kingdom, is then split up, not all together, it's taken in pieces back into captivity, Assyria, Babylon, on and on. And now we are present day. They're under the heel of Rome. They're not free. Not in that sense. But it's, it's interesting, too, that Jesus isn't even talking about it in this kind of way. He's not talking about a physical kind of freedom. If you were there in the, the message that I gave concerning the bread of life, they wanted physical bread when they came to Jesus, but Jesus says, you don't need the physical bread, you need me, because I'm the bread of life. See, they're mistaking physical things, mundane things, things that we do every day, for who God is. We're saying, well, we need these things, right? I need to eat. But they're, they're forgetting I need God. And that's, that's happening here. They're saying, well, we're free, even though they're not. But they're not thinking of it in the way that Jesus is talking about freedom. This happens constantly in John. As I said before, I mentioned the bread of life. Jesus' teachings, actions, and his identity defy what we would normally think, do, or be. We can't naturally understand who God is or what he says to us. And here Jesus' audience is running into the same problem. They misunderstand him. So they respond to Jesus negatively. You can almost hear them say it. You can hear the pride. They say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. They immediately respond, respond to Jesus' statement with, no, that's not the case. We're free. We're the offspring of Abraham. How is it that you say you will become free? And we see that they're, how offended they are. This, it doesn't just, it doesn't stop there. This escalates throughout the passage. And so many of these encounters, Jesus with the people around him, these conversations, They devolve into something like this. And so another thing to notice here, the third and final thing before we keep going, is Jesus responding to them in this way to begin with. So remember, he's talking to people who apparently believe him. And Jesus is God. Not only that, he was a pious man born to pious parents. He knows them as a man would. They're his people, right? And so he knows the words that are going to come out of his mouth. He knows what they're going to do. He knows that they're going to tick everybody off. But Jesus does it anyway. Jesus' first response to the apparent belief of his audience is immediately moving to knock down the walls of their spirituality and their identity. Because who they are when they say, we are the offspring of Abraham. This goes to the core of who they are. This isn't just a religious thing. It's not just an ethnic thing. It's not just like a national, like country pride thing. This is all of it. This is all together. This is their identity. This is who they are as a people. This is who they are individually. So when Jesus says these things, it's an affront to them and to all they know. So belief in Christ is something that will ultimately shatter what was or came before. And it moves us all to change into his likeness. He moves us from our own orbit around the goddess self, and he draws us into his own orbit and to his feet. This is essentially what happens through the whole of the passage that we're going to read. Again, it escalates. We're going to read similar themes and similar things as we go. It'll get deeper. It'll get crunchier. But in regards to theming and different things that are happening, it stays roughly the same. So let's keep going. Let's read 39 through 47. They answered him, "Abraham is our father." Remember in 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father to say. 39, they answered him, "Abraham is our father." Jesus said to them, "If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I." Heard from God this is not what abraham did you were doing the works your father did they said to him we were not born of sexual morality we have one father even god and jesus said to them if god were your father you would love me for i came from god and i am here i came not of my own accord but he sent me why do you not understand what i say it is because you cannot bear to hear my word you are of your father the devil and your wills to do your father's desires heavy. We don't have the time to move through each of these statements individually. But we'll we'll pick out some points and we'll talk it through and we'll keep going. So the audience says in verse 33, if you remember, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus' response to this is, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. He affirms them as offspring of Abraham. But he denies what? He denies that Abraham is their father. There's a distinction drawn between being the offspring of someone and then having them as their father. So offspring here can also be interpreted as See. So in this sense, Jesus is affirming their physical lineage. He's saying, yes, I know Abraham is technically like your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. He affirms that, right? He is their physical progenitor. He is their ancestor by blood. However, father here refers to a spiritual relationship If you think of Abraham, Abraham had more children than Isaac, right? He had Ishmael. They were his offspring. Ishmael though was not a child promise. He was outside of that line. Isaac was the child, right? Through which the promise would be fulfilled that Christ would come. So in that sense it's the same. Here, right, Abraham is not truly their father, because in a spiritual sense, who your father is, is a determining factor in what you do, think, what you will to do, right? And we see that as we keep going in the passage. So Abraham is not their father, because why? They're not doing what Abraham did, because they're seeking to kill Jesus, This is not what Abraham did, Jesus says in 40. You were doing the works your father did, right? And we'll get to their father in a minute because Jesus tells us who he is. Their response is twofold. They elevate themselves and they put Jesus down. They say, we were not born of sexual immorality. And that's an attack on Jesus. Because even though we believe in the virgin birth, they didn't. They would have known Jesus' origin, and they would have believed either, A, Mary and Joseph came together before they were married, or B, Mary had a relationship with another man prior to Joseph, and Jesus is that man's child. So they're attacking Jesus and saying, look, it's kind of the same in other passages where they say, what good comes out of Galilee, right? They're saying your origin, it's no good. So what you're saying, it doesn't matter. It's called an ad hominem attack. It's a logical fallacy. And then they say another thing. They say, we have one father, even God. And so you can kind of see that they're shifting. Because before they said, well, our father's Abraham. Now they're saying, well, our father's God. And so, you know the phrase, beating your head against the same wall? Well, they're not doing that in the same way every time. They've applied a helmet this time, right? They're running against the same wall, but they're doing it in a different way. Because they, they partially understand what Jesus is saying. They understand he's talking about in a spiritual sense. He's talking about your father is a determining factor in what you do, think, whatever. So they understand that. And they say, well, we have the law. We have the temple. We're the chosen people. Our father is God, right? No one else in this world is equipped to be the children of God in the way that we are. Only we can make the claim He is our father. So they put Jesus down. They attack his origin. They elevate themselves and say, well, we're the children of God. And Jesus' response is to say what? If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. And he redefines his origin, right? Because the people of Israel are saying, you came of sexual immorality. Therefore, your origins are tainted by sin. And Jesus says, no, that's not the case. I came directly from God. I come from the highest authority. I am beyond reproach. And because I come directly from God. God cannot be your father. And then he tells us who their father is. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. This is clear again because he's also talking about Jesus doing what his father was. Right? He says, you're of your father the devil and you wills to do your father's desires. How does Jesus always talk about himself? He's always doing and listening to the will of the father. Right? He's always following the father. And so that's a sign as to who Jesus is. Jesus can claim God as father. Because he follows what God is doing. But the people here, they don't do that. The spiritual father of his audience is the devil because their wills are bound, enslaved, if you will, to doing and fulfilling their father's desires. His audience can keep from sinning, lying, and loving darkness no more than Jesus can stop being righteous, the truth, and the light of the world. There's a distinction in who they are. Now we come to a couple of challenging verses, at least for me, I think. Because in 45 through 47, it tells us, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He said it twice. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What did we read in 31? So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. It's interesting, right? 45 through 47, we have people that don't believe. And back here in 31, we have people that do. Many commentators, especially Baptist ones, claim that those who have been answering Jesus in this exchange, like the whole way through, that it must be this third group. So that when you said, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, There are also interspersed throughout that group people that don't believe. Right. And so when the people that are having the back and forth with Jesus here. Well, there are people that don't believe right there. There's there's people that believe there and there's people that don't believe. And there's this third group. That's adding to the text. It's a cop out. This is inserting something external to the text that fits a particular narrative. It's adding to the scripture. Something that is external. There's no reason to believe that Jesus is suddenly talking to someone else or that someone other than the specified audience is suddenly talking to Jesus. Jesus is saying in verses 45 through 7, 45 through 47, that they do not believe to the audience he was speaking to in 31, those who had believed. I think that raises the question, well, what do you do with that? I think collectively we can say, well, we affirm the perseverance of the saints. You don't lose it, right? When you believe, you believe. I think for the most part, that's that's where we're at together. But clearly the people in 31 are believing there. And then by the time we get to 45 and 47, they're no longer believing If you remember specifically, John chapter 6, when we went through it in the fall, it's been a while. But when Jesus is talking to the people, he fed them 5,000 people. Right? He divided, he multiplied the bread and the fish, and he fed them all. And then Jesus got in a boat, and he went across the sea. And then the people all wake up, they're like, where did Jesus go? And they're, they're almost rabid. They go after him, right? They, they have to find him. And they find him much later, across the sea, in a town. They're like, where have you been? We've been looking for you. You did this amazing thing and you just leave. And Jesus tells them, he reveals that what they really wanted was the physical bread. They believed in him for physical bread. But they could not accept him as the bread of life. There was a measure of belief in that they believed Jesus could feed them physically. But they did not want what they actually needed. Jesus for himself. Jesus the bread of life. Jesus that would satisfy them forever. They stopped short of that. They're like, nope, don't want that. I'd like some food. That'd be great. Or whatever other miracles you want to give us. Healings? Fine. That's great. We don't need you as the bread of life. In the passage where we are now, Jesus has gone too far, right? What he was saying before is fine. They can jive with it up until that point, and then we get to here, and it's like, whoa. That's too far. They believe Jesus for the bread, but when Jesus knocks down this notion of reality and reveals truth to them, he reveals their true need. It unveils their unbelief. They believe in a Jesus of their own making. They build a house of straw in 31, and Jesus blows it down here. What they really had was unbelief, not belief. Once Jesus walks outside the lines that they have drawn in the sand... Once Jesus reveals himself to be too big to be held in the box that they've built for him, they check out. What was once belief is now unbelief. Again, what they need is to believe in Jesus as he is. To leave behind their nets, their worship of self, the boxes that they built to put God in, and to cling to Christ. But they will not believe. Jesus for this. Not for this. So Jesus reveals their unbelief. Notice, too, that there's no middle ground here. There's no muddy, murky water where the people can hide out. Jesus' words always reveal what people are doing with him. The very person of Jesus and the reality of the gospel unveils who people are. It evokes a response. and the possible responses... Or either to reject him as he is, or to accept him, to cling to him, to consider all else as loss, and to hold to him as your only hope, because he is. So yes, believe in Jesus, but as he is. Let's read through to the end, forty-eight. Well, let's, yeah, let's let's go ahead and read the rest. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. As did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Then Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So let's go back to 48. We can read here that his audience is now flailing. They've abandoned any attempted reason or working through scripture to refute Jesus. They're now just basically calling him names. <clears throat> are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They attack him, right? But initially they're doing so verbally. And then we have this whole exchange, which ultimately culminates in Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Remember in the beginning of the message, I said that typically when John relates to us an instance where Jesus says, I am, it's normally put with something else. Right. Typically, this is the case. I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. Tonight we'll look at, I am the good shepherd. Here, that doesn't happen. It's just there. You think maybe they were waiting for him to finish the sentence? Or do you think Jesus said it in such a way that there was an immediate... He just said, He is, I am. In this instance, it is indisputable what Jesus is saying. Jesus reveals in this statement that it was he who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. It was he who spoke to Moses from the bush. And it was he who spoke to Abraham in Genesis 18 that promised him a son. It has always been he. I am. This is the one that they must believe. Not a magician that can conjure loaves of bread. Not a teacher that can help them obey the law, not a military leader that will galvanize a rebellion against Rome, overthrowing their oppressor. No, they can no longer misunderstand. Jesus' claim is clear. All golden calves are ground to dust in this moment, and we see him for who he is. If there were any other chance, if there were any chance that we could interpret this any other way, we have the response of his audience to confirm what Jesus is saying. Right? Because they understood and they immediately hated him for it. They believed him a blasphemer. So they sought to kill him. If he had said that he was anything else, they probably would have accepted it. They may not have been all of them happy about it. But they probably would have let it go. Prophet? Sure. Teacher, go for it. A king that will liberate us from Rome to make us free again. Love it. But Jesus is not merely any of these things. He's not merely teacher, prophet, king. He denies them these labels and these names. Remember, in Exodus 3, Moses is saying, how do I identify you? And God says, identify me as I am, because I am that I am. And Jesus does that here. He takes away, no, none of that. I am. I am that I am. He uses the name. And the rejection of Jesus by the audience here is shown to be complete. They seek to kill Jesus. And he hides himself and departs from them. This is Jesus revealing himself for who he really is, and those who heard him respond with total rejection. Do you remember earlier when I when I talked about Jesus responding to this passage? That all oh, they're believing in him, and Jesus immediately moves and knock the walls down. He blows the walls down. I talked about who came before shatters for Jesus. And you may have heard that. You may have heard those words and you thought, well, not quite like that. It sounds kind of rough. It sounds kind of extreme then. That's maybe kind of, but not in those words. Or you may have thought it was odd that Jesus did this with people who have been stated as believing in 31. Brothers and sisters, Jesus knew the nature of their belief. They may have trusted him as a provider of material needs, a leader, a prophet, whatever. But they did not believe in Christ for who he is. They did not cast themselves on Christ as their liberating savior. Jesus knew that the physical bread, liberty from Rome, fill in the blank, would mean nothing if they were still dead and enslaved to sin. Rebelling against their creator, enemies of life itself. Jesus must knock these walls down so we can know God for who he is. Because that's who we need. We need him for who he is, not who we dress him up to be. Another thing is we've we've used the word belief a lot today. We've talked about it a lot. And so the temptation you may feel at this point is to come away asking, do I believe enough? Or do I really believe this is why, no, you know, when I mentioned the commentators earlier, they inserted that imaginary third group because they're afraid that when you read 31 and then you read verses 45 to 47, you run the risk of saying that you can lose your belief or that you have to have a certain amount of belief. You ever hear the phrase, you just have to have enough faith. Like we could conjure faith in ourselves. Brothers and sisters, look at the whole passage Jesus tells them why they do not understand. Why do they not understand? Why does Jesus respond the way that he does? Because they are enslaved to sin and spiritual children of Satan. And Satan is antithetical to Christ. They want to kill Jesus because their father was a murderer. And they won't believe the truth because their father is the father of lies. They couldn't make themselves believe in Jesus as Savior, if they wanted to. Jesus simultaneously reveals the solution. Who sets a person free from sin? Verse 36. So if the Son sets you free, you are free. Indeed, it's the Son. Jesus has to do it. They can't do it. Jesus can. The cross liberates the slave from sin and serves as the means by which the free person is adopted As a child, remember, a child abides in the house forever. A slave does not. A child does. Children of God. And the children of God have belief by virtue of who they are because the Spirit produces it in them. And that belief which the Spirit produces in you is always enough. Even when you cannot feel it. Even when you feel like you don't want it. Even when you're running away or trying to hide from it. Even when the old man, the flesh, rises up inside you to rebel against it. Even when in our limitations we attempt to put Christ back in the box so we can understand it differently. Even when you pick up stones to kill it. The power of God through the spirit that is in you produces it and nothing can stop it. That's called grace. That is why we have verses like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So you don't need to remain in the bondage of questioning if you have enough or if you are enough. Christ is enough for me and for you always. Cling to Christ. He is the Savior in our greatest need. And who is Christ that we would cling to him? He is I am. He is I am that I am. Jesus doesn't just appear in one blip in history, live 30 years, die, and then he's gone. Jesus is I am. He was there in the beginning. He was present and active through the Old Testament. He came as the God-man so that he could bear the cross according to the Father's will. And he is working even now, even now in you, just as much now as in any moment that has ever come before, that is happening now, or that will ever come after. Drawing his people to himself. And so I appeal to you, cast yourself on Christ. Believe the I am and all that he is, and all that he has done, is doing, and will do. He is faithful in saving those who throw themselves on him as Savior. And those held by the Savior cannot be lost. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed, because Jesus is I am. He is I am. For me and for you, for always.